welcome to Season 4 of 15 Minutes on the Way, a podcast in God's voice telling His side of your story. As our last episode ended, the walls of Jericho came a-tumbling down. Except for the bit of wall that houses Rahab's family, we're in Joshua 6.22 here. You can be sure that she had her red rope hanging out her window as soon as the marching began at the start of the week. And so, just as the angel of death knew to pass over the doors marked by lamb's blood back in Egypt, the forces that crumble the walls of Jericho overlook the modest domicile of Rahab and her family within. As promised, because of Rahab's earlier faithful assistance, they are spared from the complete destruction that sweeps across all the rest of Jericho. She and her family now have a new lease on life and join ranks with the twelve tribes. And thus, Jericho is no more. My battle plan made no sense whatsoever, but Joshua and my people make clear they've learned their lesson and simply do as I command this time with earth-shattering, or at least wall-shattering, results. Is there a lesson in there? Oh, you betcha! There are going to be times when the things I ask of you seem to be, shall we say, counterintuitive to you and your habitat's way of thinking. Marching and trumpets and shouts, oh my! Not the way to win a battle, according to Sun Tzu. Uh, author of the book The Art of War, written a good seven centuries after Jericho's conquest. But take a page from Joshua's notes here. Hang in there with me and my way all the way through to the end of the battle and see how things fare, friend. Because of the wacky wall-tumbling methods employed, the destruction of Jericho is a touchstone of the story of Israel, and it marks the beginning of the end in terms of the conquest of the promised land. My redemption-carrying nation is finally going to have a place to hang at Yamaka. Not to belabor the point, but once again, this is still relatively early in terms of the maturity level of humanity in general, not to mention how we are still in the initial stages of the execution of the Abra plan. You know that the goal of the Abra plan is to rescue all of humanity from, well, yourselves. We are still very much building infrastructure at this point, and are also very firmly, even in elementary grades, in the education mode. And remember, the big lesson we are driving home for now, as well as for another millennium at least, is the idea of holiness, purity lack of defect or compromise, and most especially, the lack of even thinking about worshipping some other nation's god. So for now, they've all got to go, the gods and the people who worship them, if there's ever going to be a chance for the new nation of Israel to last long enough to fulfill its destiny and save all the other nation's backsides. There's no way for this annihilation detail to not stick in your habitat's craw, because, thanks be to me, the plan has moved into a far different stage in your life, and so you rightly don't think it's right for Israel to be, well, obliterating Jericho and its neighbors. But they must. 
and the sacrifice of the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and all the other ites paves the way for what will be the redemption of every tribe in every land in every time. In Deuteronomy 11, Moses had prescribed a future moment of rededication on Israel's part once they reached a certain point in their conquest, the mountains of Gerizim and Ebal in the central hill country, just respectively south and north of Shechem. It's all right if the poetic significance of this site doesn't hit you right away. We've covered a lot of ground in a short period of time, even though it may not feel like it. However, after having covered all the ground in his trek from all the way over in Ur, Shechem is where Abram first arrived in Canaan and is the exact location at which I appeared to him and said, This is it, my friend. To all the offspring produced by your seed will I give this very land you're on and looking at right now. It's been roughly a 700-year process, but here is Abraham's seed sprawling as a nation returned to the very ground promised him, to the very site of his very first altar built to me in this land of promise. And so it is here that the law that has bound Israel to us and defined them as our children and representatives is pronounced aloud over them in dramatic fashion. In order to firmly establish a memory of the moment, Moses had prescribed an antiphonal choral announcement of the blessings and curses that summarize the covenant. Half the people are to stand on the Gerizim side of the valley and pronounce the blessings of the covenant, and the other half are to counter with the covenant curses from the side of Ebal. And though Joshua himself reads all the words of the law over all the people, it's that back and forth with the blessings and curses that works just as we intend and sticks in everyone's memory for the rest of their lives. This is by no means the end of conquest. In fact, Joshua and his army have barely started. But this is obviously a significant touchstone that colors the rest of Israel's experience of receiving in their hands and lives the land I'd promised their great-to-the-nth grandfather seven centuries earlier. As if their experience at Jericho hadn't been enough, they move on now with the power of my promises ringing in their ears, assured by both lab and lecture that I am with them. Thus, let it suffice to say that the other parts of the Promised Land, a total of thirty-one kings, are defeated, all eventually go the way of Jericho, uh, Joshua 9 through 12 quickly covers it all. They go the way of Jericho in terms of defeat, that is. Jericho is the only place to get the trumpet march treatment. And in the spirit of full disclosure, let me say that there are a few hamlets on the fringes of the land whose conquering we save for later. In essence, though, by the time Joshua gets too old to be fighting battles any longer, he doesn't have to because I've waved the checkered flag and declared the race over and won. I have the Levites set up my tabernacle at Shiloh, a former holy site of the Canaanites. There's a new god in town, folks. Make way for Yahweh. Shiloh is centrally located, and there, under my direction, Joshua divvies up the land amongst the nine and a half tribes, remember Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh, 
are going to head back to the east side of the Jordan now that the fighting's over. If you're really interested in seeing who gets which part of the land, a quick internet search for 12 tribes promised land map will do the trick. This, however, will not be on the final. And so ends another phase of the Abra plan. Israel has been grown into nation-building numbers while enslaved in Egypt, then liberated from that slavery to have their identity formed at my mountain, and then forged over forty years of wilderness wandering. And now the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob finally have a land of their own, a land that supports well both livestock and cultivation, flowing with milk and honey. Take a lesson from my children, friend. It took Israel a long time to get there, but because they trusted in me and eventually followed my lead, they made it to the promised land. Note that they neither just sat back and watched nor plowed haphazardly ahead on their own. Well, they did a little bit of both of those things, but only to deleterious effect. It was when they worked with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength on the way I laid out for them that victory came. Turns out that's still the way things work. Before we leave Joshua behind and lay him to rest in the hard-won promised land, crack open your owner's manual to the end of the book that bears his name, Joshua, in chapter 24. Although it's short enough, you really ought to read the whole thing to get the full impact. To the extent that they could be filled, Joshua has amply filled Moses' sandals and led the people well. And like his predecessor, Joshua's last official act is to speak at length. He gathers the twelve tribes together at Shechem again, embracing once more the power and poetry of our promises fulfilled in the place we had first made them. There he renews again their covenant with me at the end of his conquests, just as he had done earlier at their start, though without the antiphonal chorus this time. Take a moment to read that chapter, please, Joshua 24. You won't find a more concise summary of everything the owner's manual has covered so far. In 13 verses, Joshua reviews their journey from all the way back at Abraham's daddy, up through and to where they're standing, once more smack dab in the possession of the very land that was promised to them long, long ago. You can still hear echoes of Moses in Joshua's challenge to the people at the end of his summary. Moses told the people to choose between life or death. Joshua gives the people the same choice, but in his own way. Now fear Yahweh and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. But if serving Yahweh seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve Yahweh. Quintessential Joshua, that lick. Remember this moment now, because we'll come back to it in a while. First, notice that there is a clear assumption on Joshua's part that every person is choosing to worship a god. There is no one who worships no god, for whether or not they are aware of it, 
Each lives in allegiance to one God or another. Naturally, his and our agenda are the same in promoting me as the best choice. I like the way Joshua uses a little reverse psychology there, knowing full well that he himself has told the people how deeply they'd regret ever turning away from me toward other gods. He's a bit like a parent saying to the child who's not listening close enough to hear the question, much less the possibilities at hand, Well, if you don't want any ice cream, I'll just put it away for now. Naturally, the people leap to their feet and say, We will serve and obey Yahweh. Well, with that sweet statement ringing in our ears, Joshua completes the renewal of the covenant we made with the people at the foot of Mount Sinai. This time, the cycle is complete, or at least as complete as it's going to get for a while. We are all back at the poetic spot in Shechem as before, only now the promised land has been won. The promise made to Abram on the very spot has been fulfilled. The centuries of waiting and wandering have come to an end, and I have done what I said I would do for my people. And so, not long after the poetic and powerful covenant renewal, Joshua, ready for his rest, his mission complete, the servant of Yahweh, my right hand for his age, dies and is laid to rest in the land we won together with him. And the bones of Joseph, which we haven't bothered to tell you until now, have been carried by Israel all this time, all the way from Egypt, are also laid to rest in the new land. Well done, my good and faithful servants. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. We've got a lot of wonderful ground to cover in future episodes. If you'd like to support what we do, share a link to today's episode with your friends. Then give us a review on iTunes or on Facebook. 15 Minutes on the Way is recorded at Steel Moon Recording Studios in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Our audio engineer is Tom Washatka. Oleksandr Zadoyani writes our theme music at smartmediamusic.com. Kenny Eicher designs our website art, kennyeicherart.com. And it's all sponsored by the Oak Haven Church in the Barn in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Until next time, be good to yourself, stay plugged in, and keep walking on the way.